You are now listening to the August 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. We have been considering the underlying meanings of the miracles Jesus performed. We considered them as a sign that Jesus gave us so that we can believe in him as the Son of the living God. By doing so, we could attain eternal life in him. Last week, we shared the story of the feeding of 5,000. We learned that Jesus is the true bread that God sent to this world. That underlying meaning was discerned from the conversation Jesus had with the Jews subsequent to this miracle. Interestingly, in the same chapter of John chapter 6, where we saw that miracle, we see another miracle. What do you think it is? Actually, that miracle is mentioned in passing in John chapter 6 and is stated more like an incident. There was little buildup to this miracle, and it is described simply as a fact. Jesus walked on the water. Let's read John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is a familiar scene to many of us. John records this scene matter-of-factly. He describes the scene as it happened. Jesus simply walked on the water to join his disciples in a boat crossing the sea. Even though this miracle appears in passing, we should think about it more deeply to understand it as a sign. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe Jesus walked on the water? I think most Christians do, and they do not doubt that Jesus actually walked on the water. We accept it as fact without much problem. However, we should think about what it is that makes us believe that Jesus walked on the water. Is it because of our faith, or is it because of something else? Could it be because we have been conditioned to believe the unbelievable? The generation that we live in is dominated by mass media, especially in the last 10 years of the digital media. We see things that seem impossible become possible in the movies and other online media programs using computer-driven special effects. Superman flies in the sky and Spider-Man zips across the buildings. All these scenes are made so real. Could it be that we mistakenly believe that Jesus walked on the water 
imagining what we saw in the movies, thinking, yeah, Jesus must have walked on the water like one of those characters in the movie. At the same time, there could be those skeptics that would say walking on water is not physically possible. They might say the story is rather far-fetched and illogical. As a matter of fact, some liberal theologians have claimed that the day Jesus supposedly walked on the water was very foggy and people mistook Jesus as walking on the water when he actually walked on the bank. After all, we are bound by our physical world and it seems impossible for people to walk on the water. It is possible only in the movies. In a way, it's natural for some people to question that Jesus walked on the water. In fact, it was the same even for Jesus' disciples. John chapter 6, verse 19 records that Jesus' disciples became frightened when they saw Jesus walking on the water coming toward their boat. Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, which records the same event, says the disciples became terrified and screamed, thinking it was a ghost. In a sense, that is the expected human response. It is impossible for a human being to walk on the water. That is against the law of nature. That is why Jesus' disciples screamed and became terrified when they saw someone walking on the water. No doubt, those that heard about this incident at the time were equally shocked. Then, what should all these things mean to us? What was it that Jesus was trying to tell us by walking on the water? Jesus is telling us that he transcends the law of nature even when he was in human form like us. Both Matthew and Mark also record this miracle of Jesus walking on the water. In particular, Matthew offers more detail and records how Peter walked on the water towards Jesus when he heard Jesus' voice. John also states that there was a strong wind while they were on the boat. As soon as Jesus got on the boat, they found themselves having arrived at the land they had been heading for. Something that could never happen happened in front of the very eyes of Jesus' disciples. There were no special effects as in the movies or computer graphics. They witnessed a human walking on the water. It is not a misconstrued event like the liberal theologians suggest that Jesus actually must have walked on the bank on a very foggy day. Jesus indeed walked on the water toward them and got on the boat, and then all of a sudden, the disciples found themselves having arrived at their destination. Disciples were first startled at Jesus for doing something they had thought impossible, but they later confessed in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Yes, there is no one who can walk on the water unless he is the Son of God and equal to the Lord God. The fact that Jesus walked on the water is a sign that shows he is the Son of God. Unfortunately, there are people who cannot believe that fact. They retort how a human could walk on the water, but... What they do not grasp is that though Jesus was a human, he was at the same time God. That is why what happened to be impossible in human eyes was actually possible. 
Merely believing Jesus as one of the great prophets does not bring us to that salvation. We must believe that Jesus is God who came in human form. If you can believe this fact without doubting it, then it is your gain, a blessing for you. But if there are people who doubt, how can Jesus walk on the water? Then they can never believe Jesus' other signs as well. How can they believe the healings Jesus did, for instance, how he healed a boy from afar without physically going there? How can they believe how he turned water into wine, how he healed a man who had been sick for 38 years, and how he had fed 5,000 people with only a few pieces of bread and fish? That is why it becomes our blessing if we accept these signs and believe in the intended meaning behind them that Jesus is the Son of God. I pray we all receive such a blessing. This concludes today's episode of Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is irrational and foolish people. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So, in the Old Testament, there's a story of Abraham. And Abraham was a man of God, and he longed for a son. And he waited and waited and waited, and at age 75, God promised him a son. And what was amazing about that is he had to wait another 25 years till he was 100 years old before he got that son, and that son's name was Isaac. You could imagine waiting that long and finally getting a son, how much you would cherish that son. As a matter of fact, there would be a temptation that you would cherish that son even more than you cherish the Lord. And before too long, God did shocking to many people. He told Abraham, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice your son to me. And the Bible says that Abraham did just that. He went to Mount Moriah and took his son and put him on an altar and was about to sacrifice his son unto the Lord when the Lord stopped him. And the Lord said to him, now I know that there's nothing you will withhold from me, Abraham. Your, your heart belongs fully to me. But there was something more significant even than that happening, I think, in that moment. Because I think that that sacrifice was foreshadowing another sacrifice. It was as if God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, stop. I'm not going to have you sacrifice your son because a day is coming when I'm going to sacrifice my son for the sins of the world. That's what we celebrate when we come to communion, that God who was rich in mercy, sent his one and only son into the world to lay his life down as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Well, if you're new with us or new watching online, it's a good time to be here. We're in, this, we're in a series called Where Do I Draw the Line? And we're, we're, we're trying to remove any confusion about where Christians are to draw the line. And you know what I mean, drawing the line. There's, there comes a time in everyone's life where we have to draw some hard and fast lines. Dealing with people who the Bible regards as foolish can be one of the most Uh, challenging situations in the world. And so that begs this question, and this is the question we're going to try to answer this morning. Where do I draw the line when it comes to irrational and foolish people? Because our society seems to be filled with them, and they seem to be everywhere. And again, because as believers, if we're not sure where to draw the line, we can begin to lose our collective minds. So this morning, we're going to try to navigate this issue. Now, one of the first things you must know, biblically speaking, by the way, when I talk about irrational and foolish people, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I simply mean it in a biblical sense. The Bible has a lot to say about irrational and foolish people. So one of the first things you must know biblically is that irrational and foolish people come in all shapes and sizes. Okay, they come in all shapes and sizes. And here's the kicker. It can encompass both believers and non-believers depending on the circumstances. That's right. It's very much possible for someone who is a believer to, at times and in certain circumstances, be irrational or inf- and foolish in their thinking. Now, if you need proof of that, look at how many pastors and church leaders over the last year and a half embraced critical race theory, hook, line, and sinker, without even knowing what it was. That irrational and foolish people come in all shapes and sizes is so easily demonstrated from the scriptures Let me just prove it to you. In your notes, I gave you 10 of them. So this is, we'll just go over 10 of them. I mean, there's a hundred, there's a thousand of them, but here's 10 of them. Number one, irrational, foolish people don't believe in God. Psalm 14, one says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
Okay, so Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his name. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Their words go to the ends of the earth. Creation literally screams God exists. Romans 1 says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his divine nature and eternal power are clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. So the Bible says that creation screams that God exists, but you know what else Romans 1 says? It says, unbelievers suppress the truth. Have you ever been in a pool with somebody that had a beach ball and you tried to push that beach ball down under the water? How difficult it is? You have to push with all your might to suppress it and get it down there. And even then it's near impossible to keep it down there for very long. That's what the unbeliever does. He is taking what is so obvious in a world with so much design, so much order, so much creation, so much beauty, so much physics and math. It's all there. It screams that there's a creator. They literally have to suppress it with all their might and deny it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's, it should be completely obvious. Number two, irrational foolish people don't fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now here's one that can apply to both believers and unbelievers. You want to know what scares me about the church today? The church today is so much of the preaching is God is our buddy. God is our pal. He's here for you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. Instead of preaching a God who is holy and righteous and sits on his throne, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that anyone in whose scripture, whoever got a glimpse of God, fell at his feet as though dead. That's the God that's not being preached. And because I am not sure that, I know that non-believers don't fear God. I'm worried that the church may not fear God as we should. Irrational and foolish people trust their own minds. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The last person you ever want to trust in this life is yourself. Do not trust yourself. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. It's the best thing you can do. A fool does just the opposite. Irrational, foolish people give full vent to their anger. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, anger. But a wise man quietly holds back. Let me ask you a question. When you turn on the TV and you look at what's going on in Washington, do you see politicians giving full vent to their anger? Darn right you do. They're angry up there on both sides of the aisle in, in many cases. A fool gives full vent to his anger. Irrational, foolish people don't take sin seriously. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. But wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Ever met a person who just doesn't take being moral or holy serious? That's a fool. And by the way, our society is full, full of foolishness with the things that are, we are not advocating for. It is as if sin were a joke to those in Washington, those in Hollywood, and those even running churches. Irrational, foolish people lack discernment and are easily influenced. The simple believes everything. The simple person, you tell him anything, it's like, okay. And unfortunately, we have the world telling the church how to believe, and most of the church is going, okay. Oh, this is what you should believe about what racism is, is. This is what you should believe about what oppression is. This is what you should believe about genders. This is what you should believe about sexuality. Okay. The simple believes anything. There's no discernment at all. Irrational, foolish people always think they're right. What does the Bible say? In the abundance of counselors, there's victory. The smartest thing you can do is listen to the wisdom of others. You're not that smart, nor am I. 
Irrational, foolish people love expressing their opinions. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his or her opinion. How many of you have somebody in your life that loves to hear themselves talk? Always telling you what they believe, what they think, how they feel. You try to get a word in edgewise and you get run over, right? Irrational, foolish, and foolish people are divisive and quarrelsome. Now, needless to say, before we answer the question of where to draw the line with foolish people, we would be wise to do something first. And you know what that is? Look inward. Look inward. It would be wise to make sure that we are not blinded by any foolishness of our own. Why do I say that? The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way. The wise man, the wise woman takes thought of their own path that they're on. Proverbs 14, 15 says, the prudent man gives thought to his steps. The prudent woman gives thought to their steps. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, look carefully, be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make sure your steps are wise, that you're being prudent, that you are walking not in folly, but in wisdom. You want to know what concerns me as a Christian, me personally, is that sometimes I, go, I get so fixated on what other path people are on, I lose sight of the path that I'm on, that I can be walking in foolishness while judging those over there. So before we start asking the question, where do I draw the line with the fools in society or those that are being foolish and irrational in society, it helps first stop and ask, is there any foolishness in my life? We might want to pray a prayer like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, are you ready? Is anybody with me still? Here we go. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why not just avoid foolish people altogether? Okay, just avoid them. As a matter of fact, there's verses in the, the scripture that talk about this. It says like Proverbs 23, 9 says, do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. So there are times in which believers should avoid the fool and not speak in their presence because it's just worthless. It's fruitless. And while avoiding irrational and foolish people can sometimes be the absolute right choice, it's not always necessarily the best choice. And let me give you one big reason why. Here it is. Unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says it. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, sometimes the very best thing we can do and the necessary thing to do is to confront a fool in their folly because if we don't, he or she will only gain credibility in their own eyes and oftentimes in the eyes of others. Listen, our country and the church for that matter is mired in folly. And those who are advocating for such folly, tell me if I'm wrong here, are only getting louder and prouder. Do you agree with me? The, those that are advocating for folly are only getting louder and prouder. Those that are saying, let's have boys compete in girls' sports are everywhere. They're getting louder and prouder. Who's going to confront them? They need to be confronted. Confront a fool into, according to his folly, lest they become louder and prouder, lest they become wise in their own eyes, lest they become wise in other people's eyes. Folks, an unchecked fool becomes a dangerous fool, and there is a time in which Christians need to have the courage to say, that's insane. That's crazy. It is crazy to let grown men who think they're women go to women's bathrooms. That's insane. And it's going to be tough. It's going to take the courage of a prophet. 
It is going to take the courage of a prophet in this generation to stand up and hold the line. And I see our youth back there. It's going to take courage. I'm telling you, our generation failed your generation. But you guys have the opportunity to step up and courage and do what our generation failed to do. Call sin, sin. Call foolishness, foolishness. To call what is irrational, irrational. Listen, the easiest path, the path of least resistance, the path that will just give you an easy straight line to the finish line until the Lord calls you home is to put your head down, mind your own business, and don't do anything. But unfortunately, there's too many people doing that. There's too many good people doing that. There's too many Christians that are doing that. That is a mistake for a thousand different reasons, not the least of which is that an unchecked fool becomes a dangerous fool. The fools in Washington that are advocating for folly are getting louder and prouder. The fools in Hollywood that are advocating for, biblically speaking, advocating for that which is foolish and irrational are getting louder and prouder. Let me give you an example from Jesus, a time that he checked a fool and put them in their place, humbled them as a result. So let me tell you the backstory. Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath. He heals a woman on the Sabbath. And of course, the religious leaders who are fools and nothing but foolishness comes out of their mouth confront Jesus and they start letting him have it. How dare you do this on the Sabbath? Blah, 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 blah. That's where the story picks up. Luke 13, then the Lord answered him because one, one guy confronted him, but then he, he calls them all out. You hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, all his adversaries were put to, an unchecked fool becomes a dangerous fool. An unchecked fool becomes a dangerous fool. Jesus knew it and there's a time to check them and he did it here. And they were put to shame. He said, you hypocrites, you want to know how irrational and illogical and foolish you are? You'll take your donkey to get it water, but you won't heal a woman on the Sabbath? You're the ones that are insane. That's utter insanity. And folks, we have to have the courage to do that in this generation to go, I'm, the idea that grown men can go to women's bathrooms, that's insane. You, there's no way around it. It is utterly insane. Letting children who aren't even capable of crossing the street without getting hit by a car transition to a different gender, that's insane. Again, sometimes the best thing we can do and the necessary thing to do is confront a fool in their folly because unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Do you want to know why so many churches and denominations, for that matter, are only shells of of what they once were? It's because foolish people, foolish religious leaders, foolish pastors adopted the ways of the world around them And brought into the church foolish philosophies, irrational ideas, and worldly wisdom. And they proceeded to do whatever they want, completely unchecked by anyone. And the church has been a mess. The church has been a mess. Why? Because we are listening to those who are irrational. To those who are foolish. We are listening to people tell us how to grow the church who aren't even believers. We're consulting PR firms and firms that don't even know God, and we're saying, how should we grow our church? Huh. Folks, how to grow the church is here. There's nothing easy about confronting a fool in their folly, but there are consequences if we don't, and our society and the church is feeling it now. Listen, there are consequences if we don't, and because if we don't, who will? 
Listen, we can say, well, I'm going to vote somebody in with courage to go to Washington and do what should be, you know, they'll do it. And that's good. But folks, voting someone into office so that they'll go be courageous and do what is rational and right and advocate for what is rational and right is only part of the answer. Every day, you and I are interacting with people who, have, who are sp- spewing out utter irrational, unbiblical thoughts. Are we going to be a generation that confronts fools in their folly, lest they become wise in their own eyes, lest they become louder and prouder? Or will we be Christians who just bow our heads, bow our knees, and say, do whatever you want? Listen to me, folks. Unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Old Testament prophets. Do you want to know what courage looks like? Old Testament prophets walked into the palaces of the kings of Israel and confronted kings and princes and priests, often doing it all alone. The nation of Israel at times was marred with ungodly kings. As a matter of fact, after it goes Saul, David, Solomon, and then after Solomon, there's 49 kings. There's 49 more kings. And the Bible says 41 of them were evil. Only eight of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's where the prophets came in. The prophets came in and said, you're being a fool. This is irrational what you're doing. You're building high places. You're adopting the ways of the world. That's, what it, that's why I say it is going to take the courage of a prophet in this generation to speak to the foolishness that we see around us. Now, again, remember, stop before you go confronting others and go, God, is my heart pure? Are there any grievous ways in me? Is there anything in my heart that needs to change? But in that moment... We need the courage of a prophet to do what needs to be done in this generation. Now, I'm not saying as Christians that we need to run around engaging every person we meet who is being foolish by biblical standards. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to go home and call that person in my family who's another fool and go, let him have it, you know? I'm not saying we need to do that. But what I am saying is we don't want to err the other way by letting foolish people get off scot-free, never being challenged, never being questioned. Why? Because unchecked fools become dangerous fools, guys. Unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Unchecked fools in your family become dangerous fools. Unchecked, fi- unchecked professors and teachers in your school become dangerous fools. Now, we still haven't answered the question, where do you draw the line with foolish or irrational people? And before we do, I want to offer a word of quick caution, okay? I want to offer a word of quick caution. Whatever you do, don't let the fool make a fool of you. Because now there's not just one fool, there's... Two. There's two fools. Why do I say that? Oh, let me go here. Wait, where am I? Go back. Don't let the fool make a fool of you. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. Now, we just read a verse that said, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then that was the verse, right? This is the verse preceding it. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him himself. So it seems like those two verses seem to contradict themselves. It says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. What is the difference? Here's the difference. There are times when you need to confront a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I mean, you need to confront him with the truth and be bold. But what this verse is saying is that when you're dealing with an irrational or foolish people, a person, be super careful not to lower yourself to their foolish ways of behaving reasoning, and thinking. 
Answer a fool according to his folly, but don't answer him according to his folly. Don't behave like him, think like him, or adopt his philosophies or ways of thinking. Because the minute you do, you are now playing the part of the fool yourself. Um, Proverbs 29.9 says, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs and there is no quiet. Why? Because when a fool sucks you into an argument where you lose your cool, you're no longer thinking rationally, you're no longer standing on the truth of Scripture, and you're out of control, the fool's won the day. Don't let a fool make a fool of you. Confront them in courage. Stand strongly on God's word. Don't budge. But whatever you do in that moment, know this. Fools are crafty. And they're going to try to suck you in, lure you in to a argument. And when they do, they're only going to laugh. Because they got you to come on their terms and not yours. So our country and our church as well is full of politicians, pastors, leaders, and influencers who are utterly foolish by almost every biblical standard. Not surprisingly, we see these people acting childishly. So often when engaging someone who is irrational and foolish, emotions start to run high. And oftentimes the fools in our lives know how to push our button. How many of you have a fool in your family that knows how to push your button? I bet you do. Bet many of you do. And before we know it, the fool presses our button and we have lost our bearings. And instead of behaving godly, reasoning critically, and thinking biblically, we begin to act just as ungodly, irrational, and worldly as the fool we are engaged with. And in that moment, guess what, guess what the fool does? He rages and laughs. <laughs> Look at you, Christian. Out of control, angry, upset, foaming at the mouth. Can't even get your thoughts straight because I have got under your skin. Don't let the fool make a fool of you. Yes, unchecked fools become dangerous fools. Have the courage to confront at times, but in that moment, proceed carefully because fools are great at making fools of others. Fools are great at making fools of others. So, as you know, Jesus time and again confronted fools. Foolish men regularly tried to trick him, stump him, confuse him, and provoke him. And here's the kicker. Jesus never, ever engaged them on their terms. He always engaged them on his terms, which was this. He never engaged them with wisdom from below, never lost his control. He never compromised the truth. Let me give you an example. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like somebody with pure motives? No, it doesn't, right? Go back to this verse. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him. These men are not pure. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions for you are not swayed by appearances. The fool flatters. The fool comes at you with impure motives and seeks to flatter you, hoping that you're blind to what they're doing. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, only a fool gets in a debate with Jesus. You're going to lose every time. But Jesus, aware of their malice, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax brought to him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. When they heard it, these foolish men, they marveled and they left him and went away. How do you get a fool to marvel? It's simple. Be bold and courageous with the truth. Amen? 
We can't just vote people into office that are going to be bold and courageous with the truth. Yes, we need to do that. We need people in Washington fighting for what is rational and sane. But folks, we have to do it in our own homes. We have to do it in our neighborhoods. We have to do it in our places of work. Wherever we are, we have to be bold, courageous Christians going, you know what? That's insane. Now, people are going to hate you for it. But I have no doubt that there will be people that will hear you and they'll marvel. They go, who are you? Because what you just said sounds really, really reasonable. You go, it is. Because it's from the Bible. There's, there is a God. We know there's a God. Uh, because of the irrationality and impossibility of the contrary. If there's no God, then we are just stardust hurtling through space. But nobody believes that. Nobody lives their life like that. Not even the staunchest atheist lives their life like that. That's the irony is the atheist borrows from our worldview every day. The atheist lives his life as, in a thousand different ways as if God exists and yet denies that he exists. When they heard it, they marveled. How do you get fools to marvel? You're courageous with the truth. Folks, in a world that is growing increasingly foolish by the minute, Christians have a unique opportunity to distinguish themselves as a people who are truly different, but only if we remain godly, reason critically, think biblically, and have courage. Proverbs 17, 24 says, The discerning man sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. Listen, the foolish man looks to the world and the things of this world. His eyes go to the ends of the earth looking for wisdom. You don't have to do that. You only need to look one place and one place alone, right? You stay here. And by the way, you want to know how a fool will make a fool of you? Here's how. If a Mormon comes to your door, what do you do? You get your Bible and you argue from the Bible as if this is true. And then if a Jehovah Witnesses comes to the door, you do the exact same thing. You grab your Bible and you argue as this is true. But then when you engage with fools and foolish people out in the world, you, you go, well, we'll just pretend that's not true and I'll just try and reason with you apart from that. That's a great example of when it, when it says, do not confront a fool according to his folly. This is exactly what a fool wants you to do. Set that aside. Folks, you have the same approach every time, day in and day out. This is your authority. And the reason we know it's true is because the, of the irrationality and the impossibility of the, other, of the opposite, of the contrary. God's word is true. And this is, on, this is what we stand on. So let's answer the question. We're out of time. Let's answer the question. Where do we draw the line when it comes to dealing with irrational and foolish people? Here's where we draw it. Draw it courageously, draw it carefully, and draw it biblically. Be courageous in this generation. Be careful because fools make fools of others. Be courageous because unchecked fools are dangerous fools. Be careful because don't let the fool make a fool of you. You stand on God's word at all times and in all ways. You have the courage of a prophet in this generation to be the rational one, the reasonable one, everywhere you go. And folks, the world's going to tell you you're insane. Don't believe it for a moment. You, with God's word, who have the mind of Christ and the spirit of God in you, you are the sane, rational, healthy person everywhere you go. Believe it. So I finished with a challenge. Oh, by the way, I want to say this. There's, there's always hope for a fool. Some of us are very discouraged. We have fools in our lives or we're looking at the world and we're like, there's no hope. Listen, there's always hope for a fool. Let me give you one quick example. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the God... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Folks, by God's grace, there's hope for the fool. 
If you've got a fool in your life or if you're dealing with foolishness, you might go, there's no hope for that person. Yes, there is. Just as there was hope for you when you and I walked in foolishness. Amen? So the challenge is very simple. Be courageous, careful, and biblical as you live in a world that is seemingly losing its collective mind. Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we leave today, God, make us courageous in this generation. God, foolishness abounds everywhere we look, everywhere we go. It seems to be on the rise. Foolish men are only getting louder and prouder. God, it's going to take the courage of a prophet in this generation, men and women that will stand up and proclaim the truth, no matter the cost to them. God, in those moments where we are confronting foolishness, help us to be very, very careful. Help us to be wise and discerning and shrewd in those moments so that the fool doesn't make a fool of us. Let us proclaim the truth and stick to the truth at all times and in all ways. And God, let us always hold out hope knowing that you can change even the hardest of heart and the most foolish of hearts. So Father, we love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name.
closer than our eyes could ever see We are pouring out our hearts here in your presence Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Today, we'll be looking into Genesis chapter 16. First, we'll read chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child, but she had an Egyptian slave woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Abraham and Sarah's situation was unfortunate. However, we shouldn't view and judge this situation with our contemporary culture and values. First, Verse 1 says Sarah, Abraham's wife, 
had not borne him a child. This explains the reason why things will happen later. In other words, if Sarah would have been able to conceive, they would not have done these things. If we read the Bible clearly, it says Abraham and Sarah are about to do something because Sarah couldn't conceive. Then it says she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah had a slave named Hagar and suggested this to Abraham. See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Then Abraham listened and acted upon her word. There's something to think about here. In the previous chapter, Abraham believed God's word, and through that belief it was credited to him as righteousness. Then the first test of faith came. Who did it come to? It came to his wife Sarah. Sarah must have felt sorry towards Abraham. Therefore she used a surrogate mother, which was common in the Near East at that time. At the time of Abraham in the region of Babylon, there was an ancient law book of Babylon called the Hammurabi Code of Law. It's one of the oldest documented law books in the world. This law book has great historical importance because through this law book, we can know the culture and values of the Near East at that time. This law book has commandments and laws that are similar to what God would give Moses in the future. Therefore, some non-believers say Moses' commandments were copied from Hammurabi Code of Law. However, the Hammurabi Code of Law were laws made by people and Moses' commandments were given to him by God, so it's different. Therefore, even though these laws seem similar, the motive and purpose are completely different. The Hammurabi Code of Law was mostly written for the authority of those who were better off. It helped the powerful people. The reason I told you about the Hammurabi Code of Law is because, as I mentioned before, it greatly helps us understand the culture of that time. As I mentioned earlier, Abraham originally lived in the Babylon region of Ur of the Chaldeans. He lived within that culture until he was 75 years old. Therefore, we must understand that many of his actions are actions that come from that culture. Just like the instance with the tithe from last time, which was something done in that culture. Conceiving a child through a surrogate mother was something that was done during that time. In the Hammurabi Code of Law, there is a law that says, if a wife cannot conceive, she must give her female slave to her husband, so the husband's seed will continue. Therefore, Sarah is not doing anything unusual, but she was keeping the law of that time. She was probably not happy about doing this. Which wife will happily do this? As I mentioned before, since the law of that time was made for those who were better off, it was advantageous for the men. For that reason, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. We cannot understand this in our culture. However, as I mentioned from last time, Abraham didn't understand God's intent that a son who is his own flesh and blood would be his heir. He didn't understand that the heir would come from Sarah who is one body with him. He still didn't understand that God's value and the world's value are different. Sarah proposed that Abraham have relations with her female slave Hagar and give birth to a son. Abraham listened to Sarah's proposal and acted upon it. 
This scene is very special because the Bible describes this scene in a very similar way with another scene in the book of Genesis. There is another incident that happened before Abraham that is being compared to Abraham's situation here in Genesis 16. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham had relations with Hagar. This is being compared to how Eve gave the fruit to Adam, and Adam ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. The Bible is clearly associating the story of Abraham and Sarah to the story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God heard Eve's word and said this towards Adam who ate the fruit. You listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat from it. The Hebrew word for listen is Shema. God rebuked Adam who listened to his wife's word instead of God's word. In Genesis chapter 16 verse 2, it says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The same word Shema is used. Abraham didn't listen to God's word that a son who is his own flesh and blood would be his heir, but listened to his wife's word. The Bible is implying that Abraham was not doing something good. However, God did not directly rebuke Abraham as he did with Adam, so there is no point of discussing about whether it was a sin or not. We should just know that the Bible is describing an unfortunate and regrettable situation. It is not saying that listening to your wife is bad. However, if a wife tries to do something from a worldly perspective, and a husband who is spiritually dull follows her, that would not be good. Later in Genesis, God will tell Abraham to listen to everything his wife Sarah says. Therefore, it differs by the situation. Genesis chapter 16 verse 3 says, And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. This was the culture of the Near East at that time. As I have mentioned before, Abraham and Sarah lived in the Babylon region for 60 to 70 years. They were accustomed to that culture. According to the Near East law of that time, if a wife couldn't conceive a child for her husband for 10 years, it can be a condition for divorce. The wife cannot justify herself if the husband wanted a divorce. The husband would gain a new wife and have children. This was the culture of that time. Therefore, the reason why verse 3 tells us the information of Abraham living in Canaan over 10 years is that Sarah didn't just come up with the thought of giving Hagar to Abraham as his wife. It is telling us that she had to do this according to the culture of that time. Now, Let's look at verse 4, which is the next verse. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. When Hagar became pregnant, she began to look down on Sarah. We may think Hagar forgot about her status and acted arrogantly, but we can't look at it this way. As mentioned earlier, according to the culture at that time, Hagar officially became Abraham's wife. Although it was according to the culture at that time, it was clearly Sarah and Abraham's mistake for allowing this to happen. 
Therefore, if we as God's children chase after worldly culture, then the stressful things will start to happen. In this age, many worldly habits and values have entered the church. Hagar's wedding was a wedding that was not approved by God. We must learn a lesson from Abraham and Hagar's union. We'll learn more about Hagar next time when we look at how the New Testament evaluates her. Before we end, I want us to think about one final thing. Genesis chapter 16 verse 4 says, He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The word despise is a very important word. In cases like this, I realize how important it is to look at the Bible in the original language. The Hebrew word for despise is kolal. This word means to take lightly. Besides that, there's another important meaning which means to curse. The translation is to despise and take lightly, but this word definitely has the meaning to curse. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is important because when God gave this promise to Abraham, the word kolal was used, which means to curse. Although Hagar may not have cursed Sarah, she took Sarah lightly. When God used this word in the promise to Abraham, God said he would keep the promise. Therefore, Hagar was treated lightly by God. Eventually, Hagar avoided Sarah and fled. Then when she returned, she was thrown out. She lived an unfortunate life. Next week, we'll see in the New Testament how Hagar didn't receive a blessing. Therefore, Hagar despising Sarah was not a small incident. But beyond the story of an individual named Hagar, it would be correct to see her as symbolically representing a person without God's promise. We'll continue the story next time. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.